Carl Cooler. That's right. This show is multicultural now. Uh, it's actually the first bilingual show in the history oh. of podcasts. So, welcome. Um, there won't be oh. any more multiculturalism in this podcast. Hola. Uh, oh no. Oh no. Now we've done it. <laughs> oh no. I really trilingual. It. Hunter, we had so many records lined up that we could break individually, and now oh. you've broken so many in this podcast, you've completely limited our artificial reach. Um, but as you might have guessed, that shalom was not a shalom misplaced. What do you think? I, I ate matzo balls for lunch today, and all of a sudden I'm feeling frisky? Probably. I mean, it is no. checks calendar Tuesday. I don't. I think I've actually never eaten a matzo ball. What is wrong with you? I don't In think fact, I have either. But I'm going to judge put, you for it. If you put chicken and dumplings and matzo balls in front of me, fifty-fifty mm. shot, I'd be able to get, guess which one. Mm. Um, I don't know who's I, I more mad at you. I don't know that matzo balls aren't chicken and dumplings. That's how little I know about them. Okay. Um, that joke sounded like you were smarter than you actually are. That's good. We're that's learning right. how to podcast. That's really the key, is talking right. more than you know about. Yeah. Um, at any rate, uh, welcome to Carl Pulling, the show that up until recently was recorded in the moving cab of a 2010 Honda Civic. Uh, now it's recorded in a standard home studio, like podcasts typically are, but we keep that pioneer spirit with us as we go. Right. And... Uh, it's a show about uh, politics, religion, philosophy, science, all the things that can get you fired. And boy, do we have a good one for getting fired today. I'm so excited. Can't wait, Hunter. It's going to be so good. Um, yeah, it's a show between two brothers. Mention the family bit. This is oh, a family show, Chris. It's Rem- a family it works, show, but not it works for kids. so well for Mabim Bam. So, you know, if it works for them, it can work for us. Yeah, because right? we have the exact same strategy they have. <laughs> exactly right. We appeal to the same demographic. Yeah. You know, I used to listen to my brother and my brother and me uh-huh. quite a lot. Sure. And they just drank the Kool-Aid so hard. I don't mind a little bit of, of leftist nonsense in my entertainment. I mean, as long as the entertainment's good. But sure. now they can't go an episode without apologizing for uh naming a character after uh, a taco or, um, <laughs> you know, embracing all the personal pan pizza religions and personal pan sexualities. They I just, um, it's just really frustrating to see how the mighty have fallen. Well, yeah, except the mighty are getting book deals. So as they, yeah, fall. <laughs> to be fair, to, uh, to be fair, uh, you can, you can, Walk around the corner and get a book deal these days. That's Everybody fair. writes a book. That's um, fair. But yeah, they're they're funny. They're still doing fine. I actually saw them live. I guess it was about two or three years ago now, and they were funny. But it's just lost some of its luster for me. Comedy yeah. works better when you don't apologize for it. Yeah, fair enough. Which is why I won't apologize for this joke. Knock knock. Who's there? Boo. Nope. Um, you should I'm not apologize. Actually, I will not. I'd like to rephrase. Comedy works best when it's funny. Um, oh, okay. Fair enough. 
and you that joke was funny when I was younger. Uh, okay, Hunter, do you re- is this what we want to talk about? About how your perceptions of things that are funny change over time? Is that sounds like be the interesting thing we get into today? Sounds like a really good show, Chris. Let's get into it. So look at this chart. You can't. It's a podcast. All right, we should talk about what we need to talk about. Um, please give me the roadkill so I can stop listening to you ad lib. Hey, okay, I will. <laughs> <laughs> so this one's already made the rounds in our circles, but I figured it's so delicious. There's just no way that we can pass over it. Uh, hey, Passover. That's another hint about today's topic. <laughs> hey, look at us. So here's the headline. Uh, Barbie goes full woke with a video teaching young kids about white privilege and BLM protests. So in case you missed it, Barbie, everybody's favorite eight inch plastic doll, uh, now got political. Uh, she was trying to stay out of it, just like Taylor Swift. And uh, it right. didn't work out for her. You know, the the mob comes for us all. That's um, right. So Hasbro her plastic has... petroleum overlords cowed her into silence. Yeah. Uh, given the fact that she is made of plastic. Yeah. And can't actually, is not animate. Um, so actually more similar to Taylor Swift than I think I initially realized, to be yeah. fair. Yeah. Um, but not a real person. N- made up by the media Um, fake hair Uh, definitely fake hair yeah has she had work done i don't know i think taylor swift's always been um a very fetching young lady yeah i I I don't think she needed any yeah maybe um but credit in tmz chris what are you doing she she jumped into the gene pool with both feet and Uh uh and it worked out for her uh but this uh this fast switch she's had into her her leftist dive. Well, she took a bim bam path, didn't she? She yeah <laughs> stayed I out so. of it and was fine. Although her new record wasn't bad, to be honest, for her record standards. Oh, um, but anyway, a fan. Let's get on. Uh, not at all. <laughs> let's where's get the, on where's target. The poster. Okay. All right. I bur- I I had to burn it. Um, oh. Not because I dislike her, just because of uh, a bed spell box. for a spell. Um, <laughs> for I wish. What kind of spell <laughs> would that be? I don't cast uh, any blonde spells. Maybe to summon her, or her ghost, or her hot twin sister. I don't know. I'm sorry. I got caught up thinking about Taylor hot Swift twin and sisters. Hot twin. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, at any rate. I, I watched this video, Hunter, this this Barbie video. Yeah. And it was a completely fallacious. The the crazy thing about it is that they have her on with another black Barbie. I don't know what it's called, but it's it's you know, this animated video. And they set it up like they're in front of a webcam, like they're obviously sitting at a desk in front of a computer, like they were doing a podcast or something. Right. And they start talking about uh, race. It's this very, you know, two very nice looking uh, young dolls and <laughs> they they are obviously talking to kids. You can tell about the, you know, the fact that it's Barbie and the words that they're using and the timbre of their voice and those kind of things. And right. they go on to describe a fake situation where one of the Barbies is getting harassed by the cops for being black out of doors. And 
it's so insane because it's not even it's not even a real story. It's just a story that Barbie made up to say right. that that racial discrimination by the cops is real. Right. Um, you could do that with literally anything, but then to target that to like an impressionable child, it's just really weird move. Yeah. Yeah. By it's Mattel, not who makes Barbie anymore? Hasbro, uh, Lincoln Logs, uh, Build a Bear. <laughs> I don't have a clue. Build a Bear is actually be a, a good guess. A Build a Bear product. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to open up a gay nightclub called Build a Bear. Just leave that where it is. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. I thought I thought we hadn't gotten to the part that was going to get us canceled yet. <laughs> you just you just already took care of that for us. It's uh, going to have uh, it's it's a Frankenstein Island of Doctor Moreau themed gay bar. Build a bear. Right. It combines two of their favorite things. Um, that being homosexuality and gross body dysmorphia, body horror. Um, oh. So, at any first. <laughs> you have to be one to know one or something like that. Right, um, right. Which, I'm straight, but look, if I wasn't, I'd be a bear, for sure. Have you seen this beard? <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah, no, I think the whole Barbie thing is just... Uh, it's just clear propaganda. Um, it's obviously targeted to children to change children's minds, uh, in the name of education. Um, but change the topic around, uh, provide as little evidence and it reads very big brotherish, right? Yeah. Or it reads like communist, like reprogramming. Um, it's not that far off from it and it's done with the best intentions, which those all, those things always are done with the best intentions. Right. And so as long as we're winking and nodding when we say best intentions, I mean, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, we're trying to educate your kids to be more empathetic is what that video is claiming to do. But really they're trying to push more plastic dolls. I mean, sure, sure, sure. They're just trying to, they're trying to hitch their wagon to the the media circus ride that is critical race theory, et cetera. Right. Nauseam. Right. No doubt. No doubt. Every business is kind of falling prey to that. Um, yeah. And they use different tools to do that. Uh, sometimes it's a nice email that lets you know that, hey, uh, even gay people can wear our clothes. And sometimes <laughs> it's a propagandic message from Barbie explaining like why the fictional doll that she's friends with has been racially oppressed by the cops. Right. Um, so, yeah. And uh, yeah, just I'm just going to keep saying it because it keeps uh, bearing out that it needs to be said. Okay. You're not rock and roll. You're not punk rock. You are not counterculture when Barbie agrees with you. Just yeah. saying. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of insane. So yeah. um, you are the new basic. Congratulations, uh, wokists. Your pumpkin spice latte and... Call of Duty video games and <laughs> Fortnite uh, and Barbie joins you on your boring UG fueled life. Um, Ooh, Uggs, so anyway, call. it's dead. Let's keep moving on. We've got a huge topic today, yeah, and I mean a huge topic. And I actually approach this with a little trepidation because it is such an important, uh, highly contentious topic. For all the the topics we've talked about that will 
piss off little tyrants around the world, um, this one has got to be the biggest little tyrant. The pissiest. Oh, <laughs> yes. I cried. <laughs> both. <laughs> I went the wrong way. Um, if, you, if you judge by scent, I would say both. Yeah, um, fair enough. And effectively, we want to get into the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict yeah. today. And it's going to be a little bit of a of a more educational, uh, a more educational episode. You know, what, there's two areas that I think American education um, has been abysmal for a long time. Now they're abysmal in a lot of areas. The way that they teach math now is just insane. Um, mm. I would be as stupid as a brick too if I was in Common Core. I think. And they've let they've let the sciences become this vaulted pantheon of unassailable theories instead of instead of driving that scientific discovery mindset right. in their education to kids. So I think that that our education system is ridiculous. That being said, uh, I think our our education system has always been weak in two areas, and one is sex the, ed. Well, <laughs> Hunter, just because you get thrown out halfway through the class for giggling doesn't mean yeah. that it wasn't worthwhile. I, um, you know, I didn't learn anything, so <laughs> nothing you didn't already know, right? Yeah, um, exactly. But uh, one one is the history of Israel. And mm-hmm. of quote unquote Palestine, and yeah. second would be the history of the USSR. USSR. Oh, cool. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, well, I hope we get to the USSR in a future video. I'm currently doing some reading and some research on that. But today, we're going to talk about the history of the Palestinian conflict. Um, and this this is a super important topic right now for many reasons, not the least of which is we have seen in the past few months a historic peace deal. And people in the media have been undermining it because it's got Trump's name associated with it. And they've been, they've been ignoring it um, where they can and belittling it where they can't. But when you understand the history of the conflict in these regions, it becomes apparent that this is one of the most important things that quite frankly any president has done since I've been alive you know in the past 20 almost 30 odd years so yeah it's a big deal. Under- no doubt and so to understand it we have to dive into the facts dive into the past dive into the history and we're going to give a overview of what's happened in the Middle East since a very, very, very long time ago, because it's all relevant. And I know that there's a whole biblical layer we could put on top of that, because the Bible is a great source of information on uh, the, the ancient struggles in that part of the world. So if you're up on your Old Testament, you'll see the connections, but that's not really the angle we're approaching it today. We're looking at yeah. Israel and Palestine as peoples and nation states throughout history. So. Right. Yeah, I think this is definitely something that Chris, you've been really passionate about. Um, it's you've put in the time. Uh, you only have fifteen pages of notes, so <laughs> that's good. 
Um, yeah, to me, this is a really intimidating topic because there's, and I think you said this pretty well in our conversations before this is it's really hard to find any like accurate data. Um, everybody has their own spin on this. It's contentious for a reason. Um, you know, and so I think making sense of it is going to be, you know, largely on your shoulders. I want to kind of act similar to we have how I've done in our debates and some of these things is where I kind of like want to just poke and prod and ask the right questions and kind of be a, uh, a foil to some extent. Although I have done some of my research and kind of know the points and stuff. Um, I'd like to kick us off when the very first fish cr- crawled out of the ocean <laughs> and uh, went to the Fertile Crescent. You can pick it up from there, I'm sure. In the legendary words of Eric Idle, skip a bit, brother. Skip um, a bit, brother. <laughs> when he's reading uh, from, from the Book of Armaments. Right. Uh, upon the, the belaying of the Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch. Um, so now this just became the Monty Python uh, podcast. Let's, I, honestly, if you need a secondary uh, podcast outlet, I'm I'm more than ready to start the Money Python podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So let's go. To, just to start, what I don't think a lot of people realize is how many states, how many nations across the world still don't recognize Israel as a state. They still don't recognize effectively that the Jews have a right to live and exist in their own nation state. You know, we have, you know, plenty, many Islamic states in the Middle East and and North Africa and elsewhere, but we have very, very few, there there is only one Jewish nation state. And so it's, it's, uh, I think it's important to realize what the current conflict actually looks like so that we can unpack this in the right context. So I'm just going to read off a list of countries that currently don't recognize Israel as a country. So we've got Iran, who did recognize Israel, but removed their recognition in 1979. Iraq, Libya, Indonesia, Malaysia, Djibouti, Morocco, Cuba, severed relationships in 1973. Comoros, North Korea, Brunei, Oman, Bhutan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Qatar, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Somalia, Kuwait, Sudan, Lebanon, Syria, Maldives severed diplomatic relationships in 1974, Mali severed relationships in 1973, um, Mauritania in 2010, Niger in 1973, Tunisia, Yemen, and Venezuela severed their diplomatic ties in 2009. So all of those countries don't currently recognize Israel as a nation state, and, and the ones that I mentioned without a date never have. Uh, they never accepted that Israel is a nation state. And this is why we're talking about this right now, because there were two more countries on that list earlier this year, and that was Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. And we'll get into that further. But to, to set the stage, that's, that's where Israel sits now. There are a, a bevy of countries that refuse to recognize their legitimacy up to today. Right. Yeah. And there's obviously um, some contentious reasons for that. Um, you know, there's a lot of strange history and a lot of land changing hands. Um, yep. 
and there's a lot of different people who have lived in that area, um, both uh, depending on when you want to look at the timeline. Sometimes Israel lives there. Uh, sometimes Greeks live there. Um, it continues Romans, to just, Ottomans. Right, I think the list I was looking at was something like 10 or 15 different countries that have all occupied the same spot. Uh, and I think that's probably a generous uh, list. You know, Egypt at one point. Um, yep. So, yeah, it gets pretty crazy pretty fast. So let's let's dive into it. So the the history of the Jewish people can be traced back exceptionally far. We're going to start in 750 B.C. Uh, that's B.C. as in for before Coca-Cola. Um, oh, yes. I was like 100 years ago or something. Before Coca-Cola and then after Domino's. Um, that's right. N- no, it's before Christ and Anno Domine. Not any of this before Common Era nonsense. Remember that came up while we were going through school? Man, yeah. there were some incensed Christians about that. Um, <laughs> what a stupid thing to change. <laughs> like I don't understand it, really. Because anytime you go and look at it, a book before then, it's going to be different, right? So like just angry, impotent little people. Okay, yeah. so in 750 BC, there was a small collection of city-states in the area that is modern-day Israel. And uh, Israel was one of those nation-states. Judah was another one of those nation-states. Uh, there was many more, and they were nestled in between two empires. You had the Assyrians to the north and the Egyptians to the south. And, you know, when you're looking at a map of Israel, you can think of it, you've got Egypt on the north of Africa, and it makes kind of a boomerang shape that goes to the right and to the north, so I could say to the east and to the north, up into uh, what today is Syria, but back in the day was Assyria. And you had this bundle of nation states in there. And the Assyrians, they were uh, they were frisky. They decided to <laughs> go and expand their territory to the south. And so what happened in 722, the uh, capital city of Israel at the time, which was Samaria, fell to the Assyrians, and the Jews went south into Judah, which was the site of the city of Jerusalem. So way, way back in the day, the Jews were in, um, were in Samaria, not Jerusalem, but they found refuge with the nation-state of Judah, and that's their first, their first physical connection to Jerusalem. Then in about 615 or BC, the capital city of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, fell. And that's the city of Nineveh, which you might know from the story of Jonah and the whale when God commands. uh, God commands for the rain to fall and the animals to get on the ark two by two. We all know the story of We all know Jonah and the big boat. Jonah and the big boat. (laughs) Nineveh fell to the Babylonians. And the and the Babylonians also fought and beat back Egypt into their little corner of the world, and so they uh, they they were the controllers of Jerusalem at the moment. We're going to focus mostly on Jerusalem as it traces back and forth. So then, in 586, uh, the Babylonians sack Jerusalem and capture the Jews. This is also very prominent in the Old Testament. So they round the Jews up take them back to the 
capital city of Babylon, which makes mm-hmm. sense. Babylonians, yeah. Babylonian Empire, Babylon. We should all be tracking here. Makes and sense. Uh, that's where you get such hits as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This cool right? dude named David. Yeah, he was chilling. Yeah. And about 50 years later in 527, the Persian Empire can't, comes and takes over Babylon. And the Persian Empire was actually fairly good to the Jews. They allowed the Jews to return to their historic lands, and the, uh, many of the Jews left Babylon, traveled back to Jerusalem. And this is the period in which they built the temple, wrote the Torah, did those kind of things. So at this point in history, Jews in Jerusalem under Persian rule. And then our little buddy, Alex the Grand, comes Alexander in from Macedonia. <laughs> Alexander the Great comes yeah. over from Macedonia. He conquers Babylon. And then he ends up actually dying. He, he conquered most of the known world at the time. And after a life of, of success in battle, he actually died in Babylon. And he didn't have a, an heir that was of proper age to rule. And so the... His, his territories got divided into different Hellenistic or you could say Greek nation states. And right. Jerusalem was in one of those nation states. Um, I don't remember the names of the specific nation states, but uh, I, there, there was a, one, of the, one of the nation states, one of the Greek nation states conquered the nation state that Jerusalem was residing in and then they can control Jerusalem and they were very very contentious with the Jews they had uh, many disagreements religious disagreements uh, included and in 164 BC they actually uh, the Jews actually revolted and liberated Jerusalem from the Greeks and restored the temple. You know, Hunter, here's one of the really interesting things I learned that I didn't know when I started uh, doing some research for this show. Do you mm-hmm. know that in Jerusalem, in the temple, when the Greeks were controlling it in this period, that there was an altar in the temple to Zeus? Oh, really? Wow. So you've had several religions part their deity <laughs> yeah. there. It's okay. just, it's so interesting to think about because Zeus seems so ancient to us. And to realize that the temple built to, to God or Yahweh was contemporaneous at a certain time right. with Zeus, it just seems... Pretty um, bizarre. Yeah, I guess, I guess in a lot of ways the Bible seems so close to us and that, you know, ancient Greek uh, God seems so remote. Old, yeah. Yeah, and it's important we still, to remember. We don't deal with like ancient Greek gods anymore, but we do deal with the big three Abrahamic religions. That's right. But yeah. they were they were cohabitating at one point, Strange. at one point in the same temple. It's yeah. really wild. Yeah. Um, and so then in 50 BC, Jerusalem's conquered by the Romans, and actually the majority of the Hellenistic nation states that were divvied up at the end of Alexander the Great's rule fall to the Romans. And that brings us to the ADs. So in this period is when Christ would have lived under Roman rule. That shouldn't surprise anyone. No. Uh, Pontius Pilate's and whatnot. And Jerusalem's under control of the Romans. Well, in 66 AD, the Jews revolt inside, um, inside Jerusalem. And 
they got completely decimated and their city was destroyed. Is it was in this room. You do the womp, womp, womp music or is womp, it just womp. not? Okay. <laughs> I guess you do. It was very unfortunate for them, but, uh, yeah. you know, time heals all wounds. Time heals and, all wounds. Which is obviously not true. Which is <laughs> spoiler alert. Spoiler false. alert. False. Um, yeah, not good. And that's actually, so much of the city was destroyed except for the West Wall at that point. And that's actually where the Wailing Wall comes from because it was one of the only um, structures left standing after the after the Romans sacked the city. Goodness and, gracious. Um, but those plucky little Israelites, they they had no quit in them. They traded again in 132, and they got walloped once again. And so the uprising caused bad conditions for Jews, and they traveled across Rome, migrated across the Roman Empire. Hmm. Um, skip was that about by four- choice, or was that by, like, the Romans just did that? Well, they had made things pretty bad for them in Jeru- in in Jerusalem. Okay. Through these I uprisings, I mean, they got they got smacked hard by the Roman military when they made these attempts, and so they were kind of fleeing out throughout the empire. I mean, most of the world was the Roman Empire at this time, right? Um, no doubt. And as the Roman Empire begins to fall and crumble, the Byzantine Empire rises in the east and they actually take control of jerusalem in about 450 a.d and okay then our next important event happens around 632 a.d and here's what's important to to realize we started in 750 bc and we've been tracking the migrations of these people so the israelites have been in the land for about about 1300 years at this point and this is where we see Oh, sorry, yeah. just with different, like, occupiers, essentially. That's right. And this is where we see the birth of Islam in 632 A.D. Um, you know, you can look at the biblical route and see, you know, where, between Isaac and Ishmael and the, the way that those uh, religions split. But right. at any rate, the, the actual birth of Islam with Muhammad starts in, like, 632 A.D., and the Arab Empire expands out from Mecca, which is south of Jerusalem, at the time, and they end up taking over. They end up taking over Jerusalem, and then in uh, six sixty, yeah, sorry, in six thirty two, Islam is born. In six sixty A.D., uh, they take control of Jerusalem from the Byzantines, and then in six ninety one, they build the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount, and the Arabs continue to expand their empire across North Africa, and they actually get all the way up into Spain and Portugal today. So they yeah, kind yeah. of spread out across that entire region, um, which is interesting. So yeah, There's a lot of really interesting architecture that they were responsible for, too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, the, like the beautiful domes, the crescents. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny because you go to Prague today, and you see similar architecture to that, like, in Morocco. And that's because the Arab empire spread its wings all the way through right. uh, Eastern Europe, down through North Africa, all the way up into to Spain and Portugal. Very right. interesting. There's something, uh, I think Dan Carlin says it is like the West got so resoundingly defeated by uh, Islam during the, you know, the um, early millennium uh, that it's just has amnesia on the subject. Which is very <laughs> interesting. 
Yeah. It's it, and in some ways it's kind of true, you know. It's not true of every country, but you know, for right. uh, but for some of them, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, certainly an interesting time to uh to be in in Europe. Yeah, no doubt. All right. So, then turn of the century, uh, 1078, um Jerusalem is taken by the Turks. So, they and and this is what will eventually become the Ottoman Empire effectively, but the the Turks come across across the uh the map from the east from what's modern day, you know, east far east Europe, maybe even Russia, and they take over uh Jerusalem. So that happens and that's what leads to the Crusades. When you've seen like the movie Kingdom of Heaven or something when mm-hmm. people are, you know, Christians are fighting holy wars coming out down from Europe into the Middle East and into Jerusalem. They're fighting with the the uh, Turkish army and the Turkish occupying force in that part of the world. All right, so the Crusades happen. They're all fine. And then in 1347... <laughs> They're all the, fine. The Black There's just Death. one where kids walked over there. <laughs> Nothing's wrong here. It was all, it was all, eventually it was all fine. Um, Eventually, it was all it, you know, it, it does bear saying though that there, this started a, a you know a, a pretty ho- holistic resentment between Christianity and um, Islam, and for a while Judaism as well. Because to be honest, the Crusaders were not nice to Jews. Doesn't, um, doesn't really add up. I mean, <laughs> it's it just was, a game of football. It was. It's interesting because Jerusalem became this powder keg for three, the three strongest religions at the time. Right? right? It had the Dome of the Rock. It had the Temple, and it was you know integral in Jesus's life to say right, the least exactly. for the Christians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's funny because the Christians. Some people go, you know, the Christians and the Jews. They like it for the same reasons. Not at all. You got to remember that the Jews don't deify Jesus like us Christians do. And so right. all three of these major religions find these centers in Jerusalem for totally separate reasons. That's kind of interesting. Um, Golgotha, anyway. the temple, the dome. Yeah, effectively, that's right. Mm-hmm. And in 1347, the Black Death spreads from Kaffa, which is like near modern-day Poland or Russia. Don't fact-check me. And <laughs> uh, half of Europe dies. And here's where we start to see, not that everything that's happened before, where they've been captured and recaptured and uncaptured and returned and dispersed, etc. This is where you start to see some of the classic anti-Semitic tropes start to emerge. In Europe, Jews were blamed for the Black Death. People said that Jews were going around and poisoning wells and Mm. doing bizarre things like this. You know, there was this interesting thing that was happening at the time where the the Christians in Europe wouldn't talk to the Muslims in the Middle and Far East. And so since Jews had diplomatic and economic ties to both sides, they would actually be the traitors that went between Europe and and the the Middle East and North Africa. Oh, okay. And yeah. that that actually, you know, raised their status, raised their power because, you know, capitalism, baby. Right. Uh but Anyway, then Black Death happens, their status drops very, very quickly. Um, And they are fleeing Europe over the next couple hundred years, being persecuted as they go. And around 1594, uh, 
AD, they settle in what is Poland. And Poland had a very favorable immigration policy for for uh, the Jewish people, and so a lot of them were concentrated there. And then when you get into World War II, you understand why there's such a heavy concentration of Jews in Poland. That's, mm. that's key. Yeah. Um, however, what happens in the interim is that um, the Cossack Revolt effectively leads to the expansion of the Russian Empire, and the Russians take over what was the the Polish-Lithuanian Empire. And now a bunch of Jews that had settled in the Polish-Lithuanian state are now under Russian control. And the Russians were not very nice to Jews. And that happened in about 1795 um, AD. And so now what you have is you have about a million, probably closer to 900,000 Jews, living in uh, the Russian Empire. This is... Russia before the USSR, which is before the Russia we know today, living in this Russian empire, and they instituted this little thing they called pogroms, which are were these incredibly violent assaults on Jews living in, in that empire. Um, very bloody, very violent, destroy your entire family, destroy your home, and the Russian uh, empire government didn't care. They weren't doing anything to stop this from happening, and so the pogroms increased. So they were. Is that just based on like racism and like hatred and superstition, or was there? Yeah, basically, you know, after after the Black Death, you see this very skeptical, very antagonistic Europe when it comes to the Jews that didn't, Mm. you know, in some ways might might still be in effect. Now there is obvious there obviously better um than they were don't get me wrong but to think that the specter of anti-semitism doesn't still haunt modern europe is just not true gotcha Um, okay so at any rate this this causes the jews to disperse uh and you've got in you know up until 1870 the jews are emigrating to the united states and further into western europe like um it wasn't Germany, but what they call it back then, Prussia, um, yeah. Prussia and France and uh, Great Britain and some of these countries that weren't committing random pogroms like the Russians were. <laughs> yeah, uh, the places where they weren't getting you know randomly abused. Right, and uh, that that's where we f- saw kind of the first Jews immigrate to the U.S., which is excellent. Uh, at the same time, in Switzerland, in the city of Basel, the first Zionist Congress is held in 1897, and they were looking to find a new homeland um, in the historic lands of Jerusalem, which was currently being uh, ruled by the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottomans say, "No, you're not coming back to. You're not coming back to uh, Jerusalem." But that that Zionist council is meeting with the diaspora of the Jewish nation, um, trying to establish a foothold. And that brings us all the way to uh, World War One. So World War One breaks out. The Ottomans and Germany fight together against the um, the Allied powers, uh, and Europe's thrown into turmoil. 
and then a very interesting thing happens though in 1917 and this is key this this is key to the beginning of this conflict the british fighting with the french in the middle east promised that if the jews and the arabs gave them assistance they would develop liberated states for them at the end of the war and they uh, offered the the Temple Mount, Jerusalem, the homeland to the Jews, and other areas to the Arabs um, if the Ottomans were defeated. They both supplied their support uh, to that effort. What was that guy's name? Arthur Balfour uh, is the one who initially requested that assistance, I believe. And so then in 1918, World War I ends, and the Middle East is split up between France and England. In 1920, that area of Palestine was officially controlled by the United Kingdom. And in 1922, the Brits gave independence to Iraq and the area that Jordan's in now. Technically, it was called Transjordan back then. Um, and the French actually gave independence to Syria in the north. And that was the state of things. The area that has been called Palestine or what is modern-day Israel was still controlled by the British. But the Jews, seeing the victory after World War I, started to emigrate back to uh, that area of the world, back to Jerusalem, after um, uh, under British rule, effectively. Hmm. Um, then in 1939, that big thing happens where Germany decides to pay Poland a visit. The sequel... Blitzkrieg. Right. And then by 1945, the war ends and six, uh, six million Jews are dead at the hands of the Holocaust. Mm. So that was a lot, I know. But that traces the background of what's going on here. And we can jump into some of the more, um, the more contemporaneous elements of the conflict. Hunter, I just talked for an hour. Um, <laughs> do, do you have any questions or what jumps out at you about that? The thing I think that's the most impactful, and you alluded to this earlier in it, is how long this territory was in Jewish hands recently. Um, it was accepted by the people of the cultures who lived there that that was their land to the point where they even allowed them to resettle it um, when they were taken from it. Um I think the other thing that's interesting there is just how that land has contentiously been uh, cared for by others um, and owned mm -hmm. by others. And the fact that, you know, as weird as this may sound, but, you know, Zeus would look at um, Muhammad and say, like, dude, what are you doing on my turf to some extent? Yeah. You know what I mean? Is like the fact that that... I don't even know exactly how to say it, but that old mythological religion that we don't really pay a lot of credence to anymore, you know, was there fighting in the same space, essentially, and then gone before uh, Muhammad even showed up on the scene. You right. Know? And, and Yahweh was being worshipped in Jerusalem before the rise of the Greeks. I mean, right, exactly. Existed long before. Which right. is, is critical, critical to keep in mind. From a different angle, one thing that I think is super important to focus on is 
the story of Israel up until this point can effectively be described as uh, fleeing and migrating and persecution. Um, they had periods of peace, right. but if you're not being, you know, um, terrorized by the Babylonians, maybe it's the Ottomans. And if it's not the Ottomans, maybe it's the Nazis. I mean, they're just, it's not they good. are constantly on the run, constantly shifting, moving, and uh, trying to, trying to settle. Trying to know? find a home in somebody else's home. Right. Um, Okay, so I think I think that sets the stage. And here's where we can really uh, slow down and dive in. 1945. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the war, something very important happens. The Arab League is formed. And the Arab League consists of countries in the Middle East. Is it like the Justice the, League? Uh, it's like the Injustice League. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the Arab League Does it have an Aquaman? Uh, Yemen. I, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, take that. Shots so fired. I so so I'm just going to read you the current members of the Arab League today. So and not all of these countries existed in their final form at this point, and some of them didn't join yet. But this will give you an idea of the places that we're talking about. These are the current members. Okay. Algeria, Bahrain, Comoros, Djibouti, Egypt, Iraq. Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Libya, Mauritania, Morocco, Oman, quote-unquote Palestine, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, Tunisia, the United Arab Emirates, and Yemen. And if you were listening to the list of countries I read off earlier that don't formally recognize Israel as a country, you're going to see significant overlap. Right, there's Um, some crossover. The two exceptions, and we'll get into why, are Jordan and Egypt. Jordan and Egypt are members of the uh, Arab League, but they do formally recognize Israel as a country. But past that, by and large, these countries countries do not recognize Israel. So the Arab League forms in 1945, and over the next few years, more Jews are traveling into the British-controlled Palestine. Then in 1947, due to rising tensions in the area, the Brits withdraw, as they want to do. Um, They pull out. And the UN, kind of the fresh UN, (laughs) steps in (laughs) and proposes a two-state solution um, between the, the Palestinian people and the Israeli people living in that area. And the it it kind of split up the state based on where folks were located at the time. You know, if it was a primarily Jewish area, it would go to the Jews. If it was a primary Palestinian area, it would go to Palestine. Mm. And Jerusalem had a special status as an international zone. So it was kind of like the Vatican that everybody owns. Right, um, okay. That which would sense. allow everyone to travel there. Uh, yeah, it, it actually seemed like a decent solution um, at the time. And uh, it was actually accepted by the Zionist Congress. You remember when I told you they were meeting in Basel um, mm-hmm. around yes. the start of World War I? Yeah. Yes. So it was rejected by the Arabs, the Arab League, um, and the Palestinians in the area, area did not recognize it. 
after that negotiation fell apart. So let's keep track. First offer of a peace deal. First offer of a two-state solution. 1947, Arabs rejected outright. Or the Palestinians, you could say, rejected outright. And then uh, that starts a civil war in the region between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The civil war is bolstered by countries from the Arab League raising an army from Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt and inflicting or injecting them into the conflict. Hmm. So that occurs. Then on May 14th, 1948, the Brits officially pull completely out of Israel. They're out of the Middle East for now. And Jews declare the independent state of Israel. So this is where Israel actually becomes its own nation state. Again. Right. And that's when the Arab League declares war. So they've been injecting people into this internecine conflict in the region for a while. Now that the Brits are completely out and Israel declares itself a state, the Arab League declares war on that new nation state. And the Jews do their thing. They kick ass. You're going to hear that a lot. The Jews quite frequently kick ass. So they do that thing. They take... What is the reason for that? Is there... Is it superior technology? Is it... Well, uh, in this in this instance, yes. Not okay. always. But in okay. this inst- instance, while the Arab League was marching their armies into uh, Israel, Israeli officials went across the Mediterranean up into Europe to sign arms deals with countries. They brought back a crap ton of World War II tech, brought Uh, it back to to Israel and used it to level the playing field. Gotcha. Okay. So this smaller force was able to defeat a much larger group of forces, essentially. That's right. Okay. Okay. And in this offensive, the Jews took West Jerusalem, and Egypt took the Gaza Strip. Jordan invaded the West Bank, and the um, Arabs in those areas start to leave Jewish-controlled territory. And after this victory, even more uh, Jewish people from across the globe returned to Israel. So that's the map. You know, the the Gaza Strip is is around the city of Gaza. It's in the southwestern part of Israel. And the West Bank is confusing because it's not the West Bank of Israel. It's the West Bank of Jordan. It's Mm. the eastern side of Israel. And it is... um, it gets complicated how the lines have been drawn, but if you were just to draw a clean line around the area, it includes Jerusalem. Okay. Um, or it's right on the line over gotcha. the years. And then the other part that's going to be important, because to the to the north is Syria, and uh, this area will become important too, the Golan Heights, and you'll see why shortly. So that's that's the score. Offered peace said we don't want any peace. The UN couldn't broker a peace deal. The um, Arab League attacks. Israel defends itself. They lose the Gaza Strip. They lose parts of the West Bank, but they take Western Jerusalem. Okay. Yeah, so I think the interesting aspect 
to that conversation to me is why why didn't the Arab nation um, or Palestinians uh, Arably excuse me wh- why was it that they didn't want peace you know what I mean it was it was it uh, did you research like provide any information there like why they didn't necessarily want to sign the peace deal I don't want to be too presumptuous um, okay. they hate the Jews okay they de- they despise them you know in modern day Israel there are in in Israeli controlled territories there are right. Muslims and Jews living together there's Muslims and Jews living together in Jerusalem right now West Jerusalem mm-hmm. right there's okay. Muslims and Jews living all across Israeli controlled territories there's a Muslim party in the government. Right. However, okay. Jews cannot go into Palestinian controlled territories. There's huge signs on the side of the highway. Ben Shapiro talks about this because he travels over there um, every so often. There's huge signs on the side of the highway with these warnings. They're like, hey, you are leaving Israeli controlled territory. Turn your car around. If you go into this area, we can't protect you. Mm. Wow. Um, so there, they are, there's intense hatred there. But I think that actually loops us into the next time that Israel offered peace and um, it was rejected. And in part of that rejection, the Arab world tips its hand and shows what it's really after. Because okay. it it seems insane. It seems insane to the West. It seems insane to the UN that a two-state solution isn't sufficient. Everybody can go to Jerusalem. You have your toys. I'll have mine. And the, right. the Arabs would not negotiate. And I think they tell us why after the Six Days War. So this is in 1967, between June 5th and June 10th. So about 20 years later. That's right. Okay. Um, so Egypt closed off the Straits of Tehran to Israel. Um, they were shipping goods through those through that corridor. And Egypt said, you're no longer shipping goods through the Straits of Tehran set up a blockade. Uh, tensions rose, it escalated, and um, Egypt and Syria and Jordan started militarizing their borders. During that time, Israel took a preemptive strike and leveled the Egyptian um, the Egyptian Air Force in like a day. Wow. Almost destroyed over 90% of their air force in one day. Simultaneously, they launched a ground assault into the Gaza Strip and down through the Sinai Peninsula. Um, and concurrent with both of those things, they also went into the West Bank, where Jordan had been militarizing its border, and into the Golan Heights where Syria had been militarizing its border. Mm. So it built up, built up, built up, and then they leveled the place. Um, They had air superiority. The war only lasted for six days. It's it's called the Six-Day War. So in... Yeah, pretty quick. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's this tiny little country. To look on a map, it's so funny. It's this tiny little country that is beset on all sides and being embargoed, really, by these huge nations. I mean, Syria and you could fit 10 Israels in a Syria 
and probably mm. more than that in Egypt. And Jordan's not too large, but it's larger than Jerusalem. And right. they have the backing of some really powerful places, uh, you know, like the United Arab Emirates, like Saudi Arabia. So they're, they really are on a little island out there. So anyway, they do what they do. Israel kicks ass. They conquer Sinai and the Gaza Strip from Egypt. Um, they take East Jerusalem and the West Bank from Jordan and the Golan Heights from Syria. And this comes to a head on June 19th. The Israeli cabinet decides to return the Golan Heights to Syria. They decide to return the Sinai Peninsula, but not the Gaza Strip to Egypt. And they wanted to open talks about the border uh, to their east with Jordan in the West Bank. And the there's some, in my opinion, some illegitimacy going on here. Uh, by and large, the Arabs say they never received the offer. So, so Israel was willing to return this land for peace right, that they had okay. conquered. And, and basically the Arabs just don't respond. Now, people say that the Americans were supposed to broker the deal and they never did. And that the more you look into it, the more tenuous that looks, but long and short, the Arab nations, their, their going story to this day is we never, Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't hear any peace offer. Mm. And that, that may or may not be true. I think that most likely it's not because at the same time, the, that this uh, peace offer was being brokered. The, Arab League met in Khartoum. Um, and I think I think that's Algeria. They met in Khartoum, and they came up with the Khartoum Agreement. So they okay. lost the war, yeah. although they, they didn't want to sign a, you know, the, the, basically the UN stepped in and made them sign a ceasefire. But ah, they signed, they, they ratified the Khartoum Agreement, the Arab League. The Khartoum Agreement has five or six articles. The third article is the most important one, and they call it the three no's. And this is where, when I was saying I think they tipped their hand, this is how right. I think they did it. Okay. It calls for a resistance of, quote, Israeli aggression in the area while upholding the Arab world's principles. And those principles were no peace, no recognition, no negotiations. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. That's that's what they that's what they said they wanted. So when you're saying why don't they want peace? Why won't they come to the table? Well they that's not what they want. They don't right. want a two-state agreement. They don't believe that Israel has the right to exist. Right. Because how do you go how, if you're calling for no peace, how do you change that math without recognition and negotiations? Right, exactly. You right. don't. No, I understand. The Arab League doesn't want peace with Israel. By their own admission, they want the destruction of Israel. And they make mm. it very clear right. in the Khartoum Agreement in 1967. So I think that answers the prior question. Like you said, Hunter, it's only 20 years earlier right. that they Not say... That long. Yeah. And Probably the UN's the like, why won't you come to the table? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so... For whatever reason, why won't they accept an agreement? That's why. They're not after peace. They're after total destruction. Hmm. 
Um, yeah, yeah. It's curious to me as to like, I mean, I guess that's because they believe that, or maybe they were living in some of this land for so long that it's, you know, parts of it are theirs, or maybe it's the religious significance of the territory. Um, but to me, it still seems that like, uh, you know, anybody can go to the Vatican, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they can think whatever they want to think about it. Um, it'd be pretty weird, I guess, to maybe put like a synagogue in the center of the Vatican. Um, but I don't know. I guess it's a little bit not as complicated as what's going on there, but all the same. Um, yeah. You know, allowing people to at least access it makes a lot of sense, especially when one side's willing to make that happen. Um, yeah. Israel so. has never rejected a peace offer in good faith. Um, and I'm not, that's not to say Israel's perfect. They're not. But that that is just the truth of the matter. Hmm. And, and, and here's another thing that I think is essential to look at here. When, you know, when today, when people say, you know, well, Israel is, is attacking Palestinians. Why, you know, why don't they want peace? Why won't they stop their activity? How do you appease somebody that has said no negotiations, no right. peace? I mean, at a certain point you get what you pay for and, people should have realized after the six day war that what they, they paid for was more than they could haul home in their Pinto. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they got leveled by a tiny little country. And, um, was that mostly due to technology, technological advancements in that war to Christopher or was that more? It was, it was about tactics. That's what I was going to ask the, well, for one, the Israelis, in my opinion, based on the fear of the of the size of the army that was amassing on their border sure. from three different sides with the Mediterranean to their back, decided they had to strike preemptively. And when they did, the, I mean, they ransacked the place. They destroyed, like I said, 90% of the Egyptian Air Force overnight and then started assailing the ground troops simultaneously. There was some disconnections between Egypt and Syria, um, in, and during the conflict, you know, they were sloppily organized. They weren't coordinating attacks. And Israel just kind of shock and awed um, and won the fight before it became a fight in a lot of ways. Gotcha. Uh, their own uh, blitzkrieg, if you will. They learned well. Right, right. right. And, then, and, and then people, here's another thing I want to just point out, because this matters at this point. People uh-huh. want to say, you know, host this conspiracy theory that, you know, the Jews in their own Congress and the Knesset decided to give back the, give back the Golan Heights, give back, um, the Sinai Peninsula. And, uh, the, the Arabs like to go, Oh, we never received it. We never received it. You know, which I think is just a straight up conspiracy. Okay. At the, at the same time, they were signing the Khartoum resolution, which says they weren't going to negotiate anyway. Right, so, right. Honestly, who so, gives a damn if they receive the thing or not? They really they were matter. signing a document that said that they would not accept. So right. I, I I think it's all a little rich, um, and I don't really buy that that argument, although it's out there. No, I understand that. I think it's fair to give the you know the devil his due on that, but at the same time, it seems pretty obvious that even if it had showed up, it wouldn't have been something that they would have taken seriously. Um, right. So 
anyway. All right, so let's resolve that conflict. What ends up happening since the Arab League won't deal directly with Israel, the UN steps in, they bring in Resolution 242, which is basically said Israel leaves all occupied territories and uh, in exchange for peace in the region. The UN says, here's the deal. You leave what you occupied, and um, and nobody can claim the land. No one else can be belligerent. Everyone needs to go back to being happy. And Israel accepted the deal in 1968. Syria didn't accept the deal until 1972. Wow. Just to give you another angle there. So th- they won fair and square. They conquered the land, took it over from an uh, aggressive enemy, maybe not the perpetrator of the conflict, but certainly an aggressor, right? Uh, committing an embargo, etc. And Israel comes back six months later and says, yep, okay, we accept the UN's resolution. And Syria, Syria wouldn't um, until 1972. Here's something super key. 1972, Syria shows up and they go, oh, okay, yeah, we'll take the peace deal. No problem. Right. Uh-huh. October 10th, 1973, um, the 10th through the 25th, but starting on the 10th, Syria and Egypt commit a surprise attack on Israel on Yom <laughs> On Yom Kippur. Wow. On their holy day. Wow. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Yom Kippur is a day of prayer and fasting and, and resting. And that's when, just a year later, right. when Syria and Egypt coordinate uh, an attack. It really, really dirty. Now, this is uh, during the Cold War. Maybe not at the height of the Cold War, but certainly during the Cold War in 1973, and you basically had the USSR backing the Arabs and the U.S. backing Israel. Um, and there were there were Jordanian forces, Syrian forces, Egyptian forces, like there typically are in these conflicts. And the U.S., the, at, at first, the, the Israelites were getting pushed back. They were being invaded by the south from Egypt, uh, by the west, by Jordan, by the north from Syria. And... Then America did a little thing, because uh, they're our buddies, and they should be. The U.S. drops 22,000 tons of weapons into Israel-occupied parts of Israel. Huh. <laughs> oh, baby. Express delivery. We Amazon next day aired that crap. I, I was going to say that we FedEx one night it, or, uh, you know, whatever it is. 22,000 uh, tons. Right, jeez, and, Louise. And this is this is in a lot of ways this is perhaps the closest that the U.S. and the USSR got to open conflict in the in the Cold War because we were basically both sitting behind. You know, we were effectively not not to belittle the conflict in any way, but we were effectively having a Pokemon battle. You know, we we were uh, sure, um, yeah. You know, I get what you're saying. Go twenty two tons of weapons. Team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and tensions were incredibly high. Right. Um, Israel kicked ass, as they do. So they pushed They pushed um, all the way across the Suez Canal in the south to the city of Suez in a matter of days. In addition, they split their force in, in the north. They pushed all the way to Damascus. Oh, wow. Goodness gracious. So they... I mean, they ran roughshod over um, the the Arab League in this conflict, and effectively 
the UN stepped in and demanded a ceasefire because everyone was worried that if this can, escalation continued, um, U.S. and the USSR were going to end the timeline. So the UN steps in, negotiates some ceasefires, and those occur. In the aftermath, this is when OPEC is formed, the mm-hmm. uh, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. That that um, was formed to basically punish the U.S. and and um, Israel after the war because they were didn't want to admit defeat effectively, even though they got decimated. And um, that they they did something like they raised the price of oil an exorbitant amount and then cut supply simultaneously drove the price of gas way up back in the 70s right. um you've seen but, those like videos of like cars just for like blocks and blocks and blocks waiting. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah and opec still operates to this day over in the middle east oh yeah yeah, um, yeah. they're they're one of the main reasons that uh what's their bucket um venezuela is having such a hard time well venezuela they they're they can also point a big finger back at themselves, but you're right. No, it was a stupid, there's a, that's a whole nother podcast, but yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So anyway, they organized some ceasefires and then in the new year, 1974, the UN tries to broker peace. Um, and Sirius straight up refuses to attend the peace talks. Don't even show up. And so they had to stall those negotiations. But later in the year, Israel cedes Sinai back to Egypt and part of the Golan Heights back to Syria. Okay. So, once again, they are engaged in one of these trading lands for peace deals. Also, this is the third time now in 1974 that that Israel offers peace and Syria doesn't show up. Members of the Arab League won't come to the table. Right. Because they don't want peace. They don't want a two-state solution. They want the destruction of the state of Israel. So, however, the return of land to the return of Sinai to Egypt actually proved fruitful this time around. So in 1978, Israel and Egypt signed a peace deal, making Egypt the first Arab country to actually recognize Israel. And this you might know as the Camp David Accords. Um, Camp David... In, in the U.S., a historic spot for brokering contentious peace deals. It's a retreat often used by the president and the other heads of state. Israel and Egypt come to the table. They sign a peace deal. Egypt leaves the list of countries that don't recognize Israel. And the great part about that, although you could say there might be some, some you know, co-mingling of funds between Egypt and the rest of the Arab League, as far as open conflict is concerned, it's lasted till this day. So, wow. what like that is this? Yeah, well, and that's to say that brokering these peace deals is is viable. That they, they right. didn't it, go it works. forty years since the inception of Israel um, without without a war, and now they've gone mm-hmm. forty years. So we'll see what happens. You know, this is contemporaneous issues, but it appears to be working. And, you know, since then, Israel's gone through, or um, Egypt's gone through a violent revolution um, back around the turn of the century, and peace has been maintained during. So, yeah, it's it's good stuff. 
Then in 1980, Jerusalem declared, uh, was, uh, I'm sorry, I should say Israel declared Jerusalem its capital. And wouldn't you know that pissed some people off, Hunter? Why would it? It doesn't seem like a big deal. Yeah, well, it did. And huh. Weird. You, you've got to remember at this time, there's still Palestinians living in uh, Israeli-controlled portions of Israel. Right. Um, that's right. true throughout. The Palestinians revolted in what they call the first in- intifada. I want to say infanta, like a young ruler, but it's intifada, <laughs> which means revolt. And it's during this time that Hamas is created and calls for the destruction of Israel and its charter. I can't oh. remember who, what the name of the individual is, but one of the, one of the more contemporaneous leaders of um, Hamas said that he hoped that the Jewish diaspora returned to Israel so he wouldn't have to hunt them down across the face of the globe. I remember that quote, actually, and that, that is one of the more heinous things I think you could say about a group of people. Um, you know, I I think one thing I think that's been good about this conversation is just the many, like, um, the context and the history that you're providing and just giving people that view. And also I think which is good to see too is just the fact that, you know, um, I know there is some, you know, the Palestinians when the Israelites have that first war, you know, some of them get knocked out of that, um, of those territories. And from what I understand, the Jews didn't let them resettle, but makes a little bit of sense, I guess, if nobody wants to have peace and everybody wants to have a, have a war. Um, I know that that's considered like a big tragedy for the, uh, Palestinian and I guess Arab league nations, you know, it it seems to me though, it, it seems to me that even though that's occurred, it doesn't seem necessarily like, those other nations have wanted to find a solution. Right. Um, and that's what's so critical. And we're going to get deeper into that too, Hunter, because one of the most, cont- one of the most recent um, recognitions of that actually was in 1995, where there was disagreements about who can return to Israel after one of these um, uprisings. Right. So cool. So I don't mean to, I, I think you're, I think we're at a really good spot right here with the rise of Hamas and the peace peace deal with Egypt is this something we need to stretch into a two parter because we're at the hour fifteen. I think um, we can. I think we can knock the rest of it out real quick. You do? Okay. Okay. That sounds good. Let's let's take care of it then. Okay. So that's right. Nineteen eighty seven. Hamas is created. Calls for the destruction of Israel and its charter. Um, on November fifteenth, nineteen eighty nine, the Arab League. Um, meet in Algiers. I might have said they met in Algiers later. That might not have been correct. They might have met somewhere else. Did you mean earlier? Yeah, earlier I think I said that that they met in Algiers. That might have only been at this point. I can't or maybe they met in Algiers twice. I'm a little bit confused on that point. So you'll okay. excuse excuse me. The content is the same. They I'm met. sorry. Of course I was wrong. They signed the Khartoum agreement in Khartoum at this point in 1990 or 1988 they meet in Algiers. My bad. Got it. Okay. So the they meet in Algiers, and the Arab League claims an independent state of Palestine with Jerusalem as its capital. What? <laughs> you meet in exile in a different country to declare that the capital of a separate nation state is the capital of your nation state. Mm. 
this yeah. is a sham. Yeah. It, it doesn't make any sense. And, and yet again, it's an example of the Palestinians following the Jews, Jews in Israel around and claiming ownership of things right after they do. Yeah, um, that seems interesting. Do, does the... Um, oh. Does... Was there ever a claim by anyone to the capital of Jerusalem before that point? Yeah, you mean by the Palestinians? Because right, just in 1980 is when the Jews declared Jerusalem its capital. Correct. Yeah, I mean by the Palestinians. Nope. It happened. I mean, they they claimed it was a holy site, but this is the first time right. that there's declared a, a nation state of Palestine. Right. I'm with you. So they declare a nation and they declare a capital uh, when this has just been an occupied territory by various Muslim uh, empires throughout history. Not right. necessarily, it's a holy site, not necessarily a capital. Okay. Right. Or, or and, even a separate country. To go way far back, the Jews built the temple and then the Arabs built the Dome of the Rock. Right. No, no doubt. Now no the doubt. Jews claim it as their capital and then they claim it's their capital as well. Now here's gotcha. the sick part. Palestine is recognized by 136 states. The state of Palestine. The U.S. Wow. Isn't, isn't one of them. And rightfully okay. so. And actually, most democracies around the world are not included um you're talking about africa south america and um russia parts of asia but uh the u.s north america uh western western europe and the pacific islands we don't have time for such nonsense. So there's a bunch of violence happening in israel and then in 1993 oslo uh, the, there's the Oslo agreements. They meet in Oslo, and they come up with a shaky peace deal between Palestine and Israel, which grants autonomy uh, to the Gaza Strip and the city of Jericho. So they do have their own land at that point. Israel doesn't give up control necessarily, but they have autonomous governing authority in those areas. The Palestinians do. Okay, gotcha. Jericho, just so you know, is like to the east of Jerusalem. Basically, okay, and of course right. the bottom the the Gaza Strip is next to next to Egypt in the southwest. All right, so this and this kind of alludes to what you were talking about before. In 1995, um, partition plans and uh, agreements over the return of of Palestinians into the region fail because Jerusalem and Israel is worried that they're just going to import insurgents to fight because, by the way, they said they would. And uh, so they can't divide up the West Bank, and violence breaks out again in disagreements, basically over how to divide up Jerusalem and how to divide, or how to bring refugees back into the, the uh, area. I should note here that a year earlier, in 1994, this is, you've heard of the Palestinian Authority. That's when the Palestinian Authority is formed after the Oslo Agreement to cover the Gaza Strip and parts of the West Bank, like the city of Jericho. And this is started, the, the first leader of the Palestinian Authority is Yasser Arafat, who controlled it into, uh, until 2004. And then after some contentious elections, now it's uh, Mahmoud Abbas. You've heard all those names, I'm sure. Um, uh, I hadn't heard Mahmoud Abbas before, actually. You have? Or have I have not, actually. Okay, anyway, he's, he's the guy at the moment. Okay. Um, 
So it's controlling those, those autonomous areas. So then in 2000, Palestinian leaders end up traveling to the Temple Mount, which basically sparks the second intifada. This is where we see numerous suicide bombings. Simultaneously with this, this is kind of the rise of what we know as the modern um, Palestinian brand of terrorism Mm -hmm. in Jerusalem, uh, or in Israel in general, I should say. This is also when Clinton had the Camp David summit, and Ehud Barak from Israel meets with Yasser Arafat, the leader of the Palestinian Authority at the time. Israel ends up at this meeting offering Palestine somewhere between 91% and 95% of the West Bank uh, controlled territories. Arafat rejects the offer outright without a counteroffer. So count it, that's four times now. Wow. In this state's 85-year history right. that, yeah. that they have offered peace to the Palestinians, the Arab League, whatever the current leader was, and it is rejected outright. Wow. So Insane. That's 2000. In 2004, new conflicts arise as Israel builds a wall in the West Bank for protection that infringed on some of the Palestinian-controlled lands. But as these, as the Intifada is gaining power, there's more suicide bombings, more rockets, etc. They built this wall for protection. Hard to blame them for that. Um, and then a year later, in 2005, Israel actually removes all of its settlements in Gaza to try and de-escalate the tension in the area, which did not do any good, in my opinion, because in 2007, Hamas, which was formed back, as you'll remember, um, back in 1987, Hamas becomes the elected government of the autonomous region in Gaza. So you've got the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, the Syrians in the Golan Heights, and then Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Three different, you know, grueling bodies contesting these territories. And Hamas... um, basically just starts firing rockets every day from the Gaza Strip into soft targets in Israel. You know, we've got friends that that uh yeah, live in Israel absolutely. and they uh they constantly are experiencing this. Right. So that brings us to 2007, 2014, Israel uh bombs Gaza and it it does appear in this conflict that that included soft targets. Um they're getting shelled out daily and um the leadership of Israel decides we're not going to stand for this anymore. They bomb out the Gaza Strip, trying to stop the violence that happens there. Of course, that did not uh, do anything to help relations. Uh, Hamas had a real crisis on their hands in the area. They didn't have any um, any you know infrastructure left basically after that point, and conditions there worsened. Then in 2018, that's kind of the most current conflict. In 2018, the U.S. moved the embassy, their embassy to Jerusalem, and the Palestinians declared that the the U.S. was no longer a moderator of the conflict. And that brings us to 2020, when UAE and Bahrain sign Trump's peace deal and normalize relations with Israel. And this is where... This, this is why this is so important. I mean, look at the history that we've just laid out. Right. Massive. You've got, from, from ancient times, 
to modern times, we've got conflict in this area. This place has always been in conflict. And, you know, there's parts of the Bible that say it will always be in conflict. Um, at any rate, you've got these countries, part of the Arab League, that signed the Khartoum Agreement, that say no peace, no negotiations, no recognition of Israel. Up until 2020, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain did not recognize Israel as a country. I mean, it's, it's wild to, to think about. It just seems so foreign to us, that idea. But it legitimately was not until August 15th, when they signed the agreement with President Trump, that these countries even recognized the existence of Israel, mm. formally. Right. De jure. De jure recognition in law. And, you know, there's a difference between de facto and de jure um, recognition of a country. Like, if you're trading with a country, sure, then yeah. you have a de facto. Uh, anyway, those talks began earlier that, that they, they began a long time ago, but the formal talks began earlier that week. And basically, the United Arab Emirates... Um, had a de facto recognition of eight of Israel on eight thirteen twenty twenty, and then they signed the peace deal on eight fifteen. On August fifteenth, the Israeli national anthem played out of loudspeakers around the Burj Khalifa, the giant building in the United Arab Emirates. Mm -hmm. And forty eight hours before, the UAE didn't recognize them as a country. Yeah, that's I mean amazing, insane. That it that is. And not not amazing that hey Israel won and it got it got brownie points, but amazing that peace is taking place. You know what I mean? That's like, right. It's not about team sports at that point. It's just the fact that these two countries that have a lot of animosity to each other, you know, to the point of you know funding bloodshed at a minimum, right? You know, are like now playing each other's music to celebrate each other's existence, which is crazy. Right. And the winds keep coming because Jordan, who has, who recognizes Israel, they have a they have a ceasefire agreement, a peace deal, effectively. Mm -hmm. Although they haven't normalized diplomatic and economic relations with Israel yet, they supported the deal. Jordan, one of the countries that signed the Khartoum agreements, said of the deals with Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates that they it was a great decision. They said that any any prospect of peace in the area has to pursue a two-state solution. Wow. So the Khartoum Agreement says the total destruction of Israel, no peace, no negotiations. And then just, just 55, 60 years later, we've reached the point where it's, where, where it's, you know what, we need a two-state solution. And this comes on the heels two years after the Palestinian government said that we no longer take the U.S. intervening for peace seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much to go into here, and we could break down how the United Nations is a total waste of time. <laughs> and I, I'm reading, or I just finished Nikki Haley's book, with all due respect, and it was a fantastic look at, at how many times, even on, in the Security Council, um, America stands alone supporting Israel, and how... Oftentimes in the General Assembly, there are resolutions that pass XX votes to two, where it's Jerusalem and, uh, or, or I should say Israel and the United States voting against these sham resolutions that get brought up. It is truly ridiculous. 
Um, when you look at their total history, I mean, they're just, they've just been persecuted around the globe, wherever they go. And they're, it, it's not just enemies who don't like what we're doing. It's enemies that don't like the fact that they exist, right. that want to hunt them down across the face of the earth. And two years earlier, Palestine said, we don't take America's involvement in peace negotiations seriously anymore. And now you've got three of the, two of the major players signing peace deals and normalizing relations and another one praising the relationship at Tr president trump's behest um and uh jared kushner was was one of the major brokers of the deal who went over and got the work done right or at least you know, his team yeah look, kushner was on the ground over there right right um but his you know his team was with him you look at the beginning of the trump presidency and it was the whole world's going to die. Why are we giving this man the nuclear launch codes? Why are you calling Kim Jong-un little rocket man who doesn't recognize Israel as well, by the way? Mm. Um, and yet, by sticking up for America, by bombing the piss out of ISIS, you know, ISIS just grew and grew and grew. And we haven't talked about American Middle East relationships almost at all in this conversation. No. But ISIS grew and grew and grew. And we reduced their territory down. Now they're effectively wiped off the map. And we move our embassy to Jerusalem and say, no, Israel has a right to exist, and this is its capital, in contravention to the Palestinian Authority and the Arab League. By, playing, by, by standing up for what's right on the world stage, Trump legitimately brokered the peace deal that nobody else could get. If Barack Obama had done this, he wouldn't have won a sham Nobel Peace Prize. He would have won 37 real ones. Right, right, no doubt. That's the one thing, too, that we haven't really talked about in this conversation is the Iran nuclear deal. Um, and it yeah. doesn't necessarily belong, but it is interesting. You know, one of the reasons I think that when I was reading about the United Arab Emirates, um, in this deal, you know, one of the reasons that they seem to want to make this peace deal with uh, Israel was because of how powerful Iran has become in the area, you know. Yeah. And it's like Iran is, you know, due to the funding and, you know, from that previous agreement, you know, has really, really taken off and become a powerful figure in it. And they're not exactly interested in peace like it seems Israel does, you know does a right. really good job I, of like advocating for. And so I think one of the reasons you're seeing this is people are just seeing like, well, you know, we may not like them. We may disagree on a lot of things, but goodness gracious, at least they're, you know, not these guys, you know, that continues to be true. It seems so. Right. Well, it, it was, it's Israel always coming to the table to negotiate for peace and the United States making it clear that we were not going to allow the UN and the gross, human rights abusers in the general assembly there to boss us around on our, on our policy. You know, right. every president since like Nixon has said that they were going to move the embassy to, to Jerusalem. Right. And no one did it. It took and one Trump crazy did. business model to do it. We pulled out of the Iran deal. We decimated ISIS and we, we moved the capital. And these countries that, that 60 years ago were saying no peace, no negotiations, uh -huh. now are praising the fact that, that other members of the Arab League came to the table. And here's the big question. Why don't we know this stuff? Yeah. Like, wh why isn't this front page news? 
this uh, this is perhaps in a foreign policy perspective it's not even close this is the most significant achievement of any president in my entire lifetime um and potentially potentially extending well beyond my birth and i'm including what happened in 2001 i mean war is not war is a lot easier than getting members of the arab league to sign peace deals with israel and you know i know it's fresh we'll see what what lasts and what doesn't sure but if Jordan follows the the trend here, like they said they're going to, I mean, it would be the most astounding thing that potentially that happens while we're alive. Yeah, and I I think that the media, the mass media, not reporting on the significance of this event and the educational system not telling us the truth about what goes on in that part of the world is shameful. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think it's absolutely dangerous, and it's a stupid truism that if you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it, but nobody knows. In America, some people don't know the name of the vice president, but nobody knows the history of the Middle East. Nobody knows the history of Israel. Nobody knows the history of the USSR, and all, all I can say is this. I don't agree with Trump about everything. I don't like the way that he talks. I think we made that clear in our recent episodes. But what he does and what his administration does is nothing short of astounding. And this is the most significant element of that. And I, 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 I don't want to make it about me. When I was listening to the audio coming from the Burj Khalifa, and I'd start crying. I mean, when you understand what's happened in that area, mm. it's incredible. Right. Yeah, I think that I, I, I agree with you on on just about everything you said. I think this is the why it's so important for Trump to get the rhetoric right. Right? Yeah. Is because and I and I can't I don't know exactly how to put this, but it's something like it's really hard to give Trump the win when you know he's not the person who's making it happen. You know what I mean? And that is from mm-hmm. his the way he's talked about these issues, the way he's um just to, to the way he just discussed the way he was just saying recently like he wanted to go out into a crowd that he was uh you know um campaigning in front of and saying he wants to uh kiss everybody in the crowd because he's immune from covid right which is which is <laughs> right. just humorous and stupid but it's not presidential you know it's not leadership right right and i think that's why like it seems to me the wins have to go to like either unnamed figures or perhaps Jared Kushner in this case, um, the people who have really been able to work in the places where Trump doesn't really want to care about. You know what I mean? Where he kind of is just like, well, you know, what is the thing we're supposed to be doing there? All right, go ahead and take care of it. You know, it kind of feels like a a little bit more laissez-faire. Now, that's good because it's been effective in certain areas, but at the same time, it's like, it's not necessarily because of the leader we have, except that leader seems to trust people to do their jobs. And that's either. I, I would say it's directly related to the, the fact that our leader is not tyrannical. Right. In any way. Right. He doesn't exert control over every minutia. I think you do have to give credit to Trump. You certainly have to give credit to Jared Kushner. Right. Um, and, and I just think when you're, I, but I, I agree. I would agree with your, huh? When you're sticking your foot in your mouth, then it becomes then it becomes right. hard well, for the media to focus on anything else. 
you know. Speak softly and carry a big stick. Right. We're carrying a big stick again. And America was not doing it. Right. Um, we're carrying a big past. stick and we're yelling like a madman. <laughs> right. Well, but you know what? At the same time, like, if you have to choose one, carry the big stick. I you agree. know, because peace in the Middle East is is eminently desirable. Right. Well, you know, Israel is the only democracy in that part of the world. Right. And America, kudos to you for supporting them there when everybody else on the world stage won't. Um, Completely it, it agree. It does matter. It does matter. And I think that I think that you know I'm, I'm for Trump's. For Trump's foibles, and there are many, his policy in this area has been damn near perfect. Right. And he com- he accomplished things that many people thought were impossible. There was a supercut I was watching from every talking head saying, this will never happen, this will never happen, this will never happen, mm-hmm. and yet it has. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's that's what happens when you stand up for what's right and defend what's right. And that's exactly what America did in this this place. And I don't mean to make it about America uh, Israel is not perfect. That's just a fact. But what's th- the truth of the matter is, is that they give more deference to the Palestinians and more humanitarian uh, support to the Palestinians living in Israeli-controlled um, territories than the inverse, and it's not even close. One of them shelters them. The other one murders them. Right. And it, it is a blessing, a blessing to see in our lifetime the power of democracy and respect for humanity and those individuals flourish in that area yeah good well said buddy um and and screw the media for not teaching you this stuff yeah honestly they are it's so reprehensible their behavior in this area it's it, it is amazing that we're still not talking about this yeah no it is uh it is quite incredible but sadly expected so yeah, yeah. well good Hey, man, I really appreciate it. You put a lot of heart and soul into figuring this all out and spending the time to research, and it really showed. And it was just a treat for me to kind of hear, um, you know, you bring up things I wasn't aware of. You tell me things that I had kind of seen in my research, but I think this was something that was really near and dear to your heart, and you put a lot of effort into it. I think you probably educated our audience in a really good way, so I really appreciate it. Um, I hope it was entertaining. It's been heavy on my mind for a couple of months sure. and I needed to, I needed to get it out. So I appreciate you uh, granting me that deference and, and letting us talk about this. No, no, no. Um, and I think it's kind an important of issue. I think it's just one of those things that I kind of look at and I go, yikes, you know what I mean? And I don't even go yikes because I don't even think the answers are necessarily, you know, answers that I don't want to know. I think it's just yikes because it's like, I just don't know where to start. You know, with the yeah. with the amount of history, and I think you did a really good job of making it simple for people to listen to and catch on, and I think that's admirable. So, um, well, thanks, brother. Yeah, and also Let's skip our ad read and get out of here. Screw then. you. Okay, cool. I only do this for the money, honey. So, <laughs> uh, welcome to Carl Pulling. It's a show where two brothers tell you to email the show at carlpulling at gmail dot com. There's a right. Instagram and a Twitter at Carl Pulling. There's probably even a Facebook page. Does that even exist? Who is Zuckerberg? Find him. Bring him to me now. Uh, that's not a call to action. <laughs> that's just radio. A joke. Uh, <laughs> incitement. Um, <laughs> and you can follow me. That lawyer is going to really have to thread the needle, Hunter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> you'll have to uh you have to follow me at emotional crawl you have to follow chris at strawberry x i don't even know <laughs> what is your don't give away my psn id <laughs> okay. uh at at chris x carl i was close enough it's the same thing i'm um, so doxed would you please go on itunes and give us a five-star review if you don't dad won't feed us um we don't make any money off the show so we really need that uh, nourishment uh, we're also on google play maybe if that's still a thing and spotify with rogan trying to knock him off his high horse um so one of these days rogan one of these days hey, rogan look keep it simple get tested why not just get tested <laughs>